welcome to episode 16 of the JewishBoston.com podcast. I am here with uh, one of my favorite replacement co-hosts, Laura Mandel. Say hi, Laura. Hey, everybody. And we are here with uh, Kristen Gresh, who I will have you say your full title. Hi, everyone. I'm the Estralita and Yusuf Karsh Curator of Photographs at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. One, that's a fascinating title. And two, I think one place to start would be, what does that job entail? So I'm one of three curators of photography, and we are in the prints, drawings, and photographs department at the MFA. So our jobs are to take care of our photographic collection, which is about 15,000 photographs. Uh, We research what we have, we think about new acquisitions, and we prepare exhibitions, sometimes based on our own collection, sometimes loans, and sometimes we take traveling shows. Um, We also do a fair amount of programming, and um, we seek to promote our photographic collection at the museum. And one of the reasons, well, the reason we're talking today is um, you have a uh, traveling exhibition coming in March. Why don't you give us like a quick summary of that, and then we can dive into it. The exhibition we have coming in March is Memory Unearthed, the Loge Ghetto Photographs by Henrik Ross. And the exhibition we are taking from the Art Gallery of Ontario in Toronto. It is going to be the U.S. debut of the exhibition. And they are the photographs taken by Polish photojournalist Henrik Ross, who between 1940 and 44 was an official photographer of the Łódź ghetto in Poland. And his he was commissioned to do official photographs, um, ID cards, propaganda stories, but he also took covert images of the complexity of daily life in the ghetto, including deportation photographs. So right before the ghetto was going to be entirely liquidated, Ross buried his negatives and some prints that he had made and this was an attempt to provide a record of the tragedy because he wasn't sure whether he would survive himself. And he somewhat miraculously was indeed a survivor. And so he was able to go dig up this box of negatives and photographs in 1945. Um, so it's incredible that we have access to these photographs, to have an entire archive of these four terrible years um, and all of the different aspects of that recorded by Ross. And so, um, and I can get into the details of the exhibition later, but these photographs range from the official to the non-official photographs um, that are really a rare, a rare and comprehensive record. I have to say, I was totally taken when I had the opportunity to speak with your director, Matthew Teitelbaum, about this. And he explained that these negatives, or at least some of them, were stored in milk bottles, I believe, inside of a suitcase. That really struck me. They, um, it's amazing how they were stored. You know, there's um, this idea of the iron jar, just thinking about the fact that negatives were hidden in many different ways. Um, And so we do, in the exhibition, we will have a very large blow-up of a photograph where um, Ross is actually taking the box out of the ground. So literally a sort of treasure box. Um, It's kind of amazing. I'm One of the, as I was reading some of the materials on this, one of the things that I'm, I'm most curious about is how he took so he was, you know, he was hired to take these photos from the for the ID cards, for the propaganda. How did he get away with taking other photos 
where you, like you can see Nazi soldiers in some of these photos. Do they think he was just taking propaganda photos all the time? I'm just I'm very curious about the subterfuge aspect of this. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it's a good question. And I think um, between 40 and 42, he had a lot more liberty than he had after 42. So it, some of his assignment was to record daily life of you know the um, because the Woods Ghetto was known for. Um, Rimkowski's idea of rescue through work and so to actually be recording work was something that he could do and so he had much more freedom to be photographing randomly before 42 and that enabled more photographs however um, he from the beginning had a technique to actually save film so he would be able to photograph you know have the actual resources to do it and the way he did that was because he had to do ID cards for everyone in the ghetto instead of taking an individual photograph of a person per negative he would put you know maybe 8 or 10 people together with a white sheet behind them all and then take one photograph of 10 people and then cut them up to make the ID card so he was saving himself paper and saving himself negatives um, or film. And so he was able to then use that extra film and extra paper to um, do his own recording of the ghetto. And so after 42, um, when he was photographing, COVID, when he was photographing deportations, it was incredibly risky. His wife would usually be with him and be on the lookout. Um, there is a video of him a couple decades later where he says, you know, he would have his camera under his coat and he would just like whip it out quickly, snap the shot and put it back in. But he was, you know, he wouldn't necessarily bring the photograph up to his eye. You know, it was just literally snapping these shots. And he would um, specifically to when he was photographing the trains leaving, he was in a part of the train station in a sort of store or commerce area that he wasn't supposed to be in, but he was hiding in, you know, a kitchen or something. And, and, and there was a little lookout area. So there were lots of different kind of ways that he would try to capture these photographs, but it certainly um, was much easier before 42. And we have a lot of portraits and we have, um, you know, a real range of people living daily life. And then the more grim photographs after 42, when he had much more limited use of his camera. So I have a question about the camera. Uh, my dad used to do like uh, bar mitzvahs and weddings back before digital cameras. And so I would spent a lot of time looking at really what people today would consider old cameras, but even older, older cameras. He liked to collect ones where like, you know, you would look down and it would be reversed. And so I'm curious about the 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 kind and size of this camera that he was using. Yeah. So the camera that you refer to where you look down and it would be reversed is probably a Rolleiflex camera. Um we believe for the most part that Ross was using a Leica camera, which is, um, you know, an early 35 millimeter film camera. And it was known for speed at the time because the technology um, was such that it, you were able to take pictures much more quickly. So it was sort of the beginning of street photography and photography on the move of having different, you know, photographers could have different perspectives and um more quick glances at things than they had before. I'm also curious to know, um, of course, he survived the war because he dug these photos up. But what happened to him um, after he left the camps? And did he continue to take photos? Yeah, that's a great question, because he um, he did remain in Poland for a little over a decade. 
after the war. Um, he moved to Israel in the late 50s, but he never took another photograph after being in the ghetto. And um, I think that's incredibly symbolic, this amazing act of resistance and this will to bear witness and create evidence of what happened. The fact that he never picked up a camera again is pretty amazing. And as um, when he moved to Israel, he became a zincographer. And so he was actually working with his own photographs and would print the photographs taken between 40 and 44, would print them on acetate film that he got access to through his job. And he did print up his contact prints. He created a personal album of sorts where he numbered every single negative and kind of created small narratives within this large group of contact prints. And so that's really the centerpiece of the exhibition where we show these, you know, it's almost like a scrapbook that he made of all these negatives. And so he... um was always close to those photographs, I think, that he took. And you can sort of, you know, it's not a totally coherent narrative at all times, but there's small stories within. And so you can really sense his own voice and perspective and attempt to be grappling with what he went through, with what everyone went through, um, with the experiences, through the way he kind of revisited his own images. I mean, it always, it always fascinates me. I spent a lot of time in grad school studying the Holocaust, like you do, uh, and... You know, which again, not the happiest classes to take, but it's one of those things where the Nazis were so obsessed with records and order that a lot of times they helped in perpetuity prove what had happened. His story is one of those things. Like he didn't, they didn't need to have these photos. They really didn't. And, and he was a photojournalist beforehand. So they actually hired someone who had the power to do the things he did. And then he did them. And so now we have these, like, most people, like other other genocides, try to remove all records from what is happening. And the Nazis are the exact opposite. And so this exhibit, in, in sort of a way, is a, a reflection of their hubris in a way. And I, I always find that fascinating as far as like Holocaust memories go, is that a lot of these memories wouldn't have existed if it wasn't for the fact that they were so meticulous in their record keeping and their, you know, uh, and their desire to show how many... Um, you know, Jews and gypsies and homosexuals and political prisoners they were killing. I also have to say, though, it, it really speaks to me because I've I've heard you speak, Kristen, about the fact that this is a photography exhibit. It's a history lesson. There's so many different aspects to it. Can you tell us a little bit more about the uses of these photographs outside of being hung in as an exhibit? Mm -hmm, absolutely. Um, and I think one of the exciting things for me is indeed the fact that this show really reminds us of all the things that photography can be. Um, and so you think about, you know, indeed this idea of an official photographer or the idea of saying we absolutely need record of the mattress factory or the leather factory. Um, and, you know, you think at the same time there, the picture press is doing those same types of things in, ma in magazines, illustrated magazines, where you'll have a story of welcome to the leather factory and this is how we operate. And so um, it is fascinating because photography can be this document. It can be proof. It can also be incredibly misleading. It can be manipulated. Um, and so to think about Ross's sort of official role as... ID, photo taker, 
propaganda photo essay taker and then to take these other photographs that um, were really bearing witness. This, you know, it's incredibly important today, I think, to be reminded of how how we do learn about things through images and to, you know, um, think about Ross's actual photographs that initially didn't weren't seen very much at all. And then he did submit them um, to be used in the Eichmann trial. And so he became a witness in the Eichmann trial. And so the fact that the lives of these images um, became so important because it became part of the proof and the evidence of what had happened. And Ross himself was a witness and, and talked about that. And so to see the photographs that went from these documents that he attempted to save and packed in a box and, un, you know, sort of covered them and undug them up. And then to see that they were used in evidence. And, you know, I think also they're used when people are doing films about the Holocaust to kind of see the different um, landscapes and, and for artistic directors in a Hollywood film to be inspired by. Um, so just to think about the lives of these images is incredibly important. And the fact that we're going to see in this exhibition some of the actual prints that he made. And we'll also see um, photographs that were made from the negatives that have never been printed before. So it's a pretty amazing range of things because these photographs were propaganda and they were legal evidence. So it's a pretty amazing opportunity for, for us to think about photography and memory and how photography really plays such an important role in collective history and memories. I have a technical question. As I was reading this, I was curious about what the contact prints are. The, the term is used, I'm like, I don't 100% know what that is. Yeah, so a, so with the 35mm camera, you have your long strips of negatives. And when you go into the dark room and print a, basically you put the negative on the light sensitive paper, then you get a print that's made from the contact with the negative. So there's no, it's not blown up, it's not shrunk, you know, the it's the exact size of the negative. So that's where the okay. um, idea of a contact sheet comes from, is that it's basically, you know, a direct print of the negative and the size of the negative. So if it was a really big negative, a contact print could be much bigger, whereas if it's 35 millimeter, it'll be smaller. Is this um, collection of photos the... I guess, how does it, uh, it differ from, uh, there, there were many other ghettos that the Nazis set up. Um, I'm guessing they weren't as well photographed as this one was? Well, this is the one, it's hard to say because we don't know what didn't survive. Um, but this is certainly a very rare case of having such a comprehensive archive of a ghetto. Um, and there were two photographers at the Woods Ghetto. There was... Henrik Ross and Mendel Grossman. Um, so it is remarkable to have this extensive evidence and um, documentation of what it was like to your know, sort of daily life in the ghetto. So certainly this is um, absolutely rare and unseen. Whether other photographs were taken at the time and didn't survive is, you know, I'm not sure about that. But. And what for for our listening audience who are maybe thinking about coming to this um, exhibition when it opens in March, is there a set date? In March? Yes, it opens on March 25th. March 25th, excellent. And runs till July 30th. Is there a particular sort of story or theme that you're trying to have run through the exhibition for people to sort of grasp, not necessarily the entirety of the Holocaust or, you know, life in the concentration camps or even life in the ghettos, but like a, like a, 
are you trying to tell one particular person's view of these experiences or just um, the view that, you know, the the horror as well as the, the normal that these people were experiencing? Yeah, I think it's a real combination. So just to give you an idea of how the exhibition is set up, as you walk into the show, of course, you become acquainted with the story of someone's life in a box being uncovered and sharing this um, uh, incomprehensible situation in, through images. And then um, the first room is an introduction to Henrik Ross himself. He was a press and sports photographer born in Warsaw. Um, you know, ha him as a person. And then we slowly start to introduce the Woods ghetto and show photographs of how it was actually distinct from the rest of the city, how the, how the ghetto was sort of sealed off with bridges. And then um, we even have some uh, cases with ephemera, so it'll have money, stamps. We have an example of the Star of David that had to be worn, so people can really get a sense of what it was like. And then the center part of the show, so sort of part two, is about daily life in the ghetto. And so you see the mattress factory story, you see the leather factory story, you see the fecal workers, and then you also see people digging for food, and you see morgue victims, and you see, um, you know, people on the street, you see people eating soup, you see ration, you know, um, Jewish council officers coming out with their food rations. You see a real range of photographs. And, and in the center there, you have the scrapbook that I mentioned earlier, which is really, um, I think, the one place where we know that that's Ross's real kind of voice and experience because he was the one ordering them. And um, where's the others? You never know. Was this a commissioned story? Was this or was a commissioned photograph? Or was it him that decided to take this on his own? The third part of the exhibition and the last part is... Um, deportation photographs from early to mass deportations. And we have a memory wall at the end, or we're calling it a memory wall, and it's a series of um, many, many portraits that were taken between 40 and 42. And you'll see people at a dinner party, you'll see people in their homes, you'll see people out in the meadows, you'll see a young child in the street. Um, you wouldn't necessarily know the context if it weren't in the exhibition or explained to you in some way. And that's really a moment for people to think about the, um, the victims of this and to think about the idea of memory and loss. So throughout the show, the different themes that having gone through introduction to Ross, complexity of daily life and deportation, you know, I think we're really, not only we have the view of one person of this specific um, experience, but we also have a story of an act of resistance, an act of will, because he actually, you know, went and buried everything. And it's it's about resilience and survival. And as you point out, you know, this um, how do you how do you live or find any sense of normalcy in this type of situation? And so there's kind of multiple threads while bearing witness and being evidence of um, this horrible moment in history. It's also about, you know, the human spirit and um, about persevering, I think. And um, so there's, you know, multiple themes and levels at which I think that uh, you can kind of think about the show and experience it as you go through. I find that so interesting because I know that, of course, the Holocaust is a significant 
piece of the Jewish story. But I think that this exhibit is really reaching so far beyond a Jewish story and idea. Um, and I, I know and imagine that you guys are making connections to today in a, a number of different ways. Can you tell me a little bit about what that might look like? Yeah, absolutely. We are thinking about how do you tell a story of the particular and the universal at the same time. And so we are really seeking to um, not only tell this very specific story, but also open up the conversation to think about today and think about questions of tolerance and questions of fear and questions of persecution and, and freedom. So we have multiple programs planned for the spring while the show is up. Um, we have a course that will be taught that begins in March and that's really a four-week course that's um, it's contextual. We have a professor who will be talking about the history of ghettos in Poland. We have an expert on ghetto photography. So that's a little more specific to the show. But the fourth component of that course will be someone talking about contemporary resistance through images and the act of making, you know, this idea of creating um photographs that participate in active resistance today or within the last couple decades. You know, you think about the civil rights movement, you think about the Arab Spring, you think about a lot of other moments that um, are uh, connected or, you know, are sometimes learned about through photography also um, or sharing of images today. So we have the course. We also have a series of programs called the City Talks where we're going to be inviting people into the museum, we'll be in a space either right next to the exhibition or very close to it, and we'll think about contemporary themes. Is Will it be refugees? You know, that's something we're working through. We're working with Facing History and Ourselves to define themes of each city talk, and then we'll be inviting speakers from the city of Boston and surrounding areas um, to come and talk and open up the conversation. I have to admit, I'm biased and particularly excited about this component because we as the Jewish Arts Collaborative are partnering on pieces of this exhibit. Um, and we're going to be working with the museum to bring a concert on Memorial Day when they have a big free open house day. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that we're actually going to bring together musicians who come from all over the world, who come from different stories of, um, you know, refugee backgrounds and, you know, really make a mark that this is a Jewish story, but that it's a global story, and to really bring people into the fold. And so if you're around on Memorial Day, stop by the museum for sure. Yeah, we're very much looking forward to that. And I think it's going to be a great part of the Community Day um, on Memorial Day. And actually, it reminds me, another program that we're doing to kind of open up the conversation, we are going to have a symposium on May 7th. And the symposium is sponsored by Mrs. Estrelita Karsh. And we have a range of speakers, but in terms of talking about today, one of the speakers is a survivor of the Bosnian genocide. And her, so she'll be talking about her experience, but we'll also have a psychiatrist whose specialty is the Holocaust and survivors. Um, and that person's coming from New York. So we have a real range of, we also have Martin Goldsmith, who's going to be coming up from Washington, D.C., who's an, and speaking of radio or audio, he is an NPR voice and also is the son of two people who survived the terrors in ghetto. And he wrote the book Inextinguishable Symphony, um, which is quite incredibly powerful. So this way of kind of bringing together um, multiple points of view and experiences, I think, to open up the dialogue about this. We're turning back to Henrik himself. So uh, you said uh, once the war was over, he 
went back to Poland. Oh, I guess he stayed. He, he never left. Um, he stayed there for what a decade before going to Israel. Yeah, a little over that. And at that point, like the the Soviet Union was controlling Poland at that point. So he recovered his photos, held on the held on to them. How did he get out of Poland? Because as far as I know, like the Soviet Union was not a fan of letting Jews go. Exactly, and I I know it was complicated, and that was why he didn't go right away. Um, and so I don't actually know how it is that he managed to get this permission to go. But, um, you know, I know that he was still in Poland in um, just in the late 50s because there was a newspaper article which reproduced the diary of a young resident from um, the ghetto and his photographs were used to illustrate that. So, you know, he was definitely getting press um, at that time. So I think he was happy to eventually make it there, but I'm not sure exactly how, you know, that, that yeah. part of the story. It's a good, very good question. I just know that, you know, there was that huge push in the 80s to get as many uh, Russian Jews out as possible because the Soviet Union was not, was not a fan of them, but two didn't want to let them go. So I was just curious about how he m- made his way to Israel. But, and l- let me ask you this, because I think I was pronouncing it wrong. How do you pronounce the city? In Polish, I know the pronunciation is Wuj. Um when we read it in English, it looks like loads. I also hear loge a lot. So I, um, I don't know that I would call myself an expert on that, but, um, I've been told that in Polish it's woods. Um, as I, was, as I was telling you before we started recording, uh, loge, as I will pronounce it, is where my parents, uh, my dad's family is from. And they left, they left pre-World War One, So lucky in that sense. But there's a, as I was looking through the these photos, I was like, how many of these people did my family know, and where did they live? And as much as the Holocaust is sort of personal to every Jew, there's always a even more personal layer about where you know our families came from and where they got out, whether they survived, where they ended up. And so just seeing this was very, at this point, it's hard to awaken something new in me when I'm looking at Holocaust materials. Like at this point, like I have a mindset I have to go into before I'm looking at them. And this, I was just like, I was like, this is what, you know, was that a street my great-grandfather lived on? Like, is that where my uh, grandfather played when he was, you know, when he was born uh, before he came here? So it was just, you know, it's really, it's just sort of fascinating in that sense. Because you never, I never thought about, since I didn't have any family members who, you know, survived. As far as I, you know, as far as I know, um, they all left ahead of time from Poland and Austria on my mom's side. It's never been, I've never had that sort of connection to it. Like, oh, my family, you know. Uh, my family got out from here, you know, at this time and at this place. They were already gone. And so, like, this was even sort of more personal than just sort of the, the general looking at the Holocaust and thinking about it that way. So, I can't help but think that as you've done research for this exhibit that you've come across people, I would imagine, who have family from there. Have you come across anyone yet who either recognizes family members or friends or... You know, um, I was thinking of that as you were talking because uh, in, so I talked about this album that has these tiny images on it, and we will be showing a projection of each individual image. And so when the show was in Toronto, it's an hour and 45 minute projection of these small images. And I guess many people would sit there and either look for themselves or look for family members. Um, When the show was up in Toronto, there was a woman in Montreal who did recognize herself which was pretty remarkable. And just recently, and it's something we're currently looking into, but we sent the catalog um, to a potential partner and that person showed the catalog to 
the head of the Historic Jewish War Institute in Warsaw, and that person, and there was a man there that recognized himself, and so we're in the process of getting in touch with him. But and we'll see if there are other people that um, recognize family from you know people from Boston who recognize anyone from from the photographs that we'll have up in March. The the Warsaw Ghetto is the one I guess the the most famous of them because it had its own sort of uprising, and so I think it's interesting to think of the other ones and like why why the circumstances in Warsaw didn't occur in other places and it's you know so in this case it's nice to have the evidence of people's lives and their time there yeah i agree it's really um interesting just this morning i was talking to a professor from the university of michigan um who's done extensive research on multiple different ghettos and you know he was talking about how each ghetto has its sort of distinct identity um, so it is incredibly complex to kind of try to understand how each ghetto operated and how, you know, what the particularities of each one were. So I understand that as sort of a supplement to this exhibit, there's going to be another small exhibit. Um, can yes. you talk about that a little? Sure. Right next to Memory Unearthed, we are going to have an exhibition that will be a display of probably about seven or eight objects most of which are from our museum collection. And those objects will all, well, I should back up just to say um, the curator working on that is Phoebe Siegel, and she um, is sort of taking as a point of departure Raphael Lemkin's thinkings and sort of um, writings about genocide and specifically this idea of the erasure or attempt to erase identity through mass violence and destruction of cultural symbols. So um, as a museum to sort of think about this idea of preserving memory and preserving um, historical uh, memories and cultures, Phoebe has chosen a selection of objects from our collection that um, show resistance to that erasure of identity or make reference to this question of mass violence. Um, so it'll really open up some of the questions in the Memory Unearthed show and bring it to all the, you know, parts of um, human history. There's an Assyrian relief that shows mothers and children's mothers and children being expelled from a kingdom. There's a painting by Gorky. You know, it's going to be, I think, an important show that we'll really be thinking about this idea of displacement, dispossession, mass violence, and destruction of cultural symbols. I have a question about the displaying of photographs. You can't leave photographs up for, you know, uh, for people to see the same way you could a painting. I'm curious about, like, how the timetable of that works and how is it, is it a cumulative effect or is it a based on, you know, when it is up and how much light is being shown on it and then if you put it away, then it's fine for a while and then... I'm curious about like the the life of a photograph. Yeah, it's abs- It's a very good question. It's something um, I think that is surprising for a lot of people to learn about because a f- we have a sort of general rule in the museum that we can show a photograph at low light levels um, for six months for every ten years to truly hmm. protect it. And so you think about that is a very short life of being displayed and so that's why we're you know in photography and even it's the same for prints and drawings as well those sensitive works on paper but so that's why we always have temporary photo exhibitions that will be three months long or six months long but when we're thinking about planning an exhibition we do think okay if I use this photograph now 
that means that we're not going to be able to show it for another 10 years. It's a big challenge. Keeps you on your toes. Yeah, yeah right. Exactly. Yeah. So, so like th- this exhibit, once it, you know, it's done in June, like it won't, it won't move to another city. It will just like, it will rest. As far as I know, it will be resting after the Boston venue, but it will go back to Toronto. So whether they have plans to do another, you know, to have it tour to another venue, we do, there are cases in which we break our own rules, particularly in a, with a contemporary photograph that we could make again. And I say this specifically in reference to the photographs that are in the exhibition that have been printed from the negative by the museum in Toronto. And so those photographs, you know, it would be safe to say we could show them for longer because, you know, they were made in the last couple of years and they weren't made by Ross himself. So the difference is always whether the artist made the photograph or whether it was made posthumously. Um, We don't, you know, the question of posthumous photography is different. um, But in this case, because... They've never been printed ever before. <laughs> it's a rare opportunity where you probably could show these modern prints more more than the six months for 10 years. Well, I, I was wondering about that. The, the next question I had was, my dad's going through all of his old photography and using his... He's, he's either scanning them or using his digital SLR and taking pictures of the photographs. And so my question was, is there, is there a desire or a need to sort of archive these in a way where since like you you make a copy of the photograph so that in case something happens to the original photograph there's still a copy of it somewhere or is that is that a sort of a a taboo in you know photography (laughs) well we certainly are very connected to the idea of photograph as an object um you know and i think we've talked before laura about uh the fact that today everyone's so used to having all their photographs on their phone you can erase a photograph a photograph with the tap of a finger photographs have become completely ephemeral and disposable almost and think about the numbers of photographs that are um, uploaded to Facebook and other social media sites per day so when you actually have a physical photograph in your hand it's such a different experience and it's you know this idea of of memory or an intimate object we're very connected to and and want to promote That said, we absolutely want to save them in all the ways possible. So we, um, you know, first take uh, special care of them in specific, you know, mats and specific boxes and specific temperature conditions. So we really do absolutely everything we can to protect them so that we don't have to worry about having a copy. For our own access, we do have the photo, our photographs in the museum collection are photographed and they are available to us through our database. So we do have a visual record of them. There are contemporary photographers that sometimes if you are to acquire a work, um, a color work today, you might also acquire a copy of it in case something were to happen to it. But that creates a lot of storage questions. And I mean, it's it's a good idea in principle to have two photographs made at the same time that are equally authentic and one you can exhibit and one you can know that you always have. And some museums do that as a regular policy. They always get an extra copy or, you know, exhibition print. They're called many different things. But it also creates logistical problems <laughs> for, as you can imagine, to all of a sudden double the amount of things that you have to be storing. Are there steps 
you need other than keeping them in the dark for people who have never used negatives. Are there negatives for all of the photos? The photographs that we have, so the Ross show is, I think, particular in the fact that the museum, um, the AGO, has all of these negatives. That's a pretty rare thing in a museum. I mean, we do, at the MFA, we do have big groups of work by specific photographers, and we do sometimes have their negatives, but generally we don't have the negatives, but we have prints. But in, you know, photo archives, they're like the Center for Creative Photography in Phoenix, Arizona, has an incredible archive of both negatives and prints. So that's, you know, depending on the mission of the institution, there's a range of setups where people might have negatives and prints or just prints. I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, because you're right, like I hadn't thought about up until recently when we found a old disposable um, underwater camera that we couldn't get developed anywhere because no one does that anymore. <laughs> um, I hadn't thought about film itself in quite some time and the amount of work that, that used to go into just getting a regular photo developed and how you had to I wait. Also, yeah. I have to say the three of us are all of the general generation where we remember film, but we know digital. Right. And that's a very interesting moment. I mean, I think back to when I was little and I would go off to camp and my dad would make sure I had enough rolls of film to last the summer. Exactly. I mean, it's like, it's I know. A, and then right? you would send them away and you would wait for them to yeah. come back, yeah. you know. And then I remember also when you didn't have to send them away anymore, you could actually go to a place near and, you know, it's kind of amazing to think how it's changed and and now we people snap in future and delete, generations snap yeah. and delete. that's yeah. right exactly <laughs> take 12 photos of one thing and just keep the the best one yeah, right. we had an interesting conversation the other day that she was alluding to um about snapchat and does that make the photos less valuable and i said but it just changes how you think about them i think that's the, the thing that's so fascinating to me about photography as a tool in an art form right yeah absolutely yeah it's totally changing and i think um you know, for future generations, this idea of the permanence or of the actual tangible object is a completely different, different thing. Well, well as we wrap up, why don't you um, give us again the sort of the, the summary of this program so that I can use that clip as a, this is what this is what this thing is happening in March at the MFA. <laughs> so on March 25th, we have this show, Memory Unearthed, that will be opening and will feature about 300 prints of photographs taken by Henrik Ross in the Woods Ghetto between 1940 and 44. Uh, the photographs still exist by something just short of a miracle because Henrik Ross, who was a resident of the ghetto and an official photographer, had the insight to bury a box of his negatives and some of his prints it, with the fear that he was not going to survive, but with the desire to preserve the legacy of this tragedy. And he was a survivor in the end and was able to retrieve and dig up these photographs in 1945. So it is truly um, a series of memories that were unearthed and uh, they present the complexity of daily life in the Woods Ghetto and I think give us all an opportunity to talk about the importance of photography and memory and think through this as we discover Ross's world between 40 and 44. Well, thank you so much. This was great. Thank you so much, Kristen. This yeah. was really fun and thank interesting. You. Thank you both. I look forward to seeing you at the show. Definitely be there. See us. Well, I hope you all enjoyed our conversation with um, Kristen Gresh 
And I want to thank uh, Laura Mandel from the Jewish Arts Collaborative for being here to talk with Kristen with me. And of course, I want to thank Sean Fogel for our music, as well as the CGP Young Adult Team and JewishBoston.com for letting us do this. And you can help us find a bigger audience by leaving us a review on iTunes or on Google Play or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, you know, uh, send us, you know, leave us a review, share it online. And uh, if you want to email me, which again, if you email me, I will probably read it online at podcast at jewishboston.com. Thank you all for listening and have a great day. (laughs) 